welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and today I am not alone. Hey, bop a rebop, I have the very Matthew McConaughey of the Deep Purple Podcast, Nathan Beaudry, as my co-host today. We're talking Beatles. How are you, Nathan? I'm doing great. I've never never been compared to Matthew McConaughey before. The only difference is you're wearing a shirt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you want me to take it off for the no. episode? Uh, yeah, it, uh, I want you to be comfortable. Yeah, dealer's choice. Yes, because, uh, you know, the Beatles were a very hot band. It, when I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, they had the strangest career. I mean, they were only together eight years. Most of the time, they didn't even tour. They were just a studio band. Most bands make their money doing concerts and stuff. Uh, they, they're like the most backwards band there ever was. It kind of, um, they kind of broke the the system you know like that they 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 were too big to play shows anymore they were putting them in um stadiums back before that was even a thing and that nobody had a sound system that could accommodate them so they'd be playing them through those you know the terrible speakers that was like now up to bat number 82 or you know whatever (laughs) so they'd have this terrible terrible sound and um they weren't enjoying it either because they couldn't hear themselves. Nobody could hear them. It was yeah. not a great experience. So like they just they had to kind of like regroup. And it was, you know, a few years before they were able to bands were able to even uh, figure out how do we play to audiences that large? Well, and, and the one that cracks me up the most, I mean, you think about Beatlemania and how they really could not leave the house without getting hounded by 100,000 people. So they have a concert on a roof where they're isolated to packed streets of, mm-hmm. you know, a couple hundred thousand people there to hear them perform. Let's put them on the roof where they can't get away. It just man, I don't think anyone could really see them from the ground. You just oh, yeah, you, they knew they were up there or or or, or they're playing the music or something. But um, yeah, it's kind of kind of yeah. The I think that's the only way they could could survive was to do some sort of like completely unannounced concerts. Mm-hmm. Um. So that whoever was there by the time, of course, by the time word got out, the place would probably be overrun and they'd be worried about riots and stampedes or whatever. So um, it's it's just amazing being that big. Like, I can't even imagine it. And I remember when I was a kid um, listening to their music and it, it was always like, who's going to be the next Beatles? And there'd be so many people floating, floating around and this this band might be the next Beatles. And it was always talked about. And then, you know, I remember the last band I remember really there being a lot of hype about that was Oasis. Oh, they're going to be the next Beatles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pretty soon, you know, I think I was probably like a teenager in my early 20s. I was like, there's just never going to be another Beatles because not only obviously the the, the the specifics of who they were and their songwriting and all that, but it's just the the cultural moment and the the way that media is distributed now. It just it's it would be impossible for anybody to be that big again. Even when you look at people like you know Taylor Swift and uh, all these the and probably a bunch of bands I've never even heard of that can you know demand five thousand dollars a ticket and do these amazing shows. They're still not the Beatles. They don't have that that grasp on the culture. And when you talk about them playing that show and let it be on the street they're talking to young kids they're talking to little old ladies and all of them know the music and all of them are like oh yes they're fine young boys or whatever <laughs> and that just wouldn't happen now they'd be like you know hey what do you think to some little old lady what do you think of dua lipa she'd be like, oh, who the hell is that you know they wouldn't they wouldn't understand who they were yeah exactly i mean you're 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 probably closest with taylor swift as far as just massive she's got a lot success. of reach because it's like people from my generation people my kids generation like my daughter loves taylor swift Mm. um 
my wife's not really into Taylor Swift, but like a lot of a lot of my friends' wives are. Like I know one of my friends' wives went to go see her at the when she came to Chicago recently. So mm-hmm. yeah, she's I mean, she's got that cross generational appeal. I think that you don't see very often. And what's weird to me, I did not know this because I've I've heard a couple of her songs. Um, but she was classified as a country artist. And I thought, boy, that yeah. doesn't really seem right to me. She's a pop artist, I would think. But there's such a, a fine line now. I mean, look at Shania Twain. And there's mm. a real fine line now between pop and country. It's not like that old depressing 50s country anymore. It's get up and stomp your feet and line dance and whatever. It's it's a whole different world now. Yeah. And I think it's probably... and. Keep in mind, full disclosure, I know virtually nothing about Taylor Swift, but Mm. I think it might have to do with her coming up. And as a kid, she probably did more traditional sort of country stuff. Mm -hmm. And and it was, you know, like this little kid sensation. And I know her dad was somebody in the music business. So she probably started off that way. But for the bulk of the time that I've known about her existence, yeah, she's been basically a pop person. Well, in all fairness, when she was growing up, this music didn't exist. So, you know, she she along with, I think, Shania and probably a couple other artists are really more responsible for creating that more broader genre than it used to be. Um, Interestingly, I, uh, you know, I have these little videos that pop up on my Instagram and sometimes I'll watch them. And there was one about the Beatles and they were talking about the very last concert that the Beatles play. I'm not was that the that wasn't the rooftop concert, was it? Well, I guess that was technically the last concert they played was at Shea Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, technically, I guess the performance on the on the rooftop would be the, that was the last like live performance. But the actual traditional concert that they sold tickets to and promoted and stuff was at Shea Stadium, as far as I know. OK, what they that, that's what I thought might have been um, what they were saying was Revolver had come out before their last concert, uh, but they couldn't play any of the songs on them because they were too difficult. Yeah. And I think that's the and that's the thing I've always loved about the Beatles is they were always doing they weren't just a band. And that's why I don't necessarily gravitate towards their earlier albums. Um, While there's amazing stuff and amazing harmonies and stuff and there's great songs. um, It was really like a, a consistent sound throughout the album. And the thing that I always loved about them is that every track sounded like it was set up from scratch. Mm-hmm differently it wasn't you know the first album was done in 12 hours you plugged in all the stuff and put up the microphone and everyone they just ran through the songs like it was a live performance so every song sounds the same right whereas essentially every song they did from you know probably you know maybe starting a little bit with rubber soul was you know every song was completely different it was done on a different day it was done with a different setup different instruments different um recording techniques uh different backing musicians so mm-hmm. i love that i love that vi- variation yeah. uh, in their sound everything you're right i mean rubber soul really seemed to be the beginning of that and everything after that really seemed crafted as opposed to you know here here's our little song like i want to hold your hand very straightforward 4-4 rock and roll kind of song but when you get into like Magical Mystery Tour, things were assembled in a way mm-hmm. that wasn't just like, OK, I came up with a riff. You do a solo. I'll take the solo on the next song. You know, it wasn't straightforward rock and roll anymore. And that I agree. Like I, it was good stuff, but I don't I, I'm not attracted to their older albums at all. Uh, there, There's nothing wrong with them, but it just this is the music of the Beatles that I like. Revolver, Let It Be, uh, Magical Mystery Tour. Those are my albums. Yeah, for me, it, Rubber Soul was the first one where I really started to really, really love the, the music and like the other stuff. Like I said, there's great songs and you hear those flashes of what might come in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, even like yesterday is an earlier song and it, it's really well, well done. But yeah, you're talking about a band that's essentially been to get that was essentially together for give or take uh, 12, 13 years, uh, but but really only together in the studio recording for eight, which is yeah. <laughs> insane how much output they had in that time. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I I think you could take some of those earlier songs and craft them in a way with this production style. But it's also, I think, George, they started getting more mature, which is funny to think of how freaking young they were yeah. at this point. God, I mean, how old were they at this point? Was George Harrison like 21 or something when they're doing this album? Yeah, um, unbelievable. Uh, 2021 or something. Uh, when they're doing this, they're starting to demand more of George Harris, uh, George uh, Martin, rather, mm -hmm. in recording techniques and uh, writing uh, parts for other instruments. So it's this really interesting thing where they are getting more creative, but then you're also starting to hear more of his influence and his uh, signature on these songs. And that to me is when the magic really started to happen as great as those early albums are. Yeah. I don't often go back and listen to them that much uh, tracks here and there, but these are, these to me are albums too. Like you want to just, when a, when a song stops, you hear the next one in your head already right. and you're ready for it. The whole thing, even if it's not intended to like, this isn't quite like as much so as Sergeant Pepper, but the songs work together. And to me, that culminated with Abbey Road, which we talked about some time ago mm -hmm. to me being their, their finest work. But a lot of people, a lot of fans, I know for the long time, Sergeant Pepper was kind of like almost indisputably the, 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 the album that was the album. And then I find like over time, the, the Beatles aficionados and everything kind of shifted that over to this album to revolver being the best. I think part of it was just to be contrary, like, Oh, only the, you know, although it's funny because you can't be, there's no deep cuts in the Beatles catalog. You, you can't be like, Oh, I like the, I like this. Cause it's, not many people know Revolver. I mean, everybody <laughs> knows the album. So, and everyone knows, like, you know, maybe if you're not a big Beatles fan on it, you might not know some of the songs as well. Mm -hmm. But this album is 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 huge. So, yeah. I think part of it was just that contrary, um, the contrarian reaction to Sgt. Pepper going unchallenged for so long that people have to say, "Oh no, it's I, I like Revolver. Look, I'm being different." And I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters. Both of them are just absolutely um, revolutionary in oh, their own yeah. ways and both great albums. And I have to wonder when when people give opinions, how much of it is actually their realistic, honest opinion and how much of it is, well, I don't want to say what everyone else is saying or I want to be the first <laughs> yeah. one to report differently or, you know, I think there's so much more involved than what people really think that you might as well not even listen. Yeah, I just want to be like, what's your favorite Beatles song? I want to hold your hand. Yeah. That's my favorite Beatle. Uh, you know, like I, you know, I, I would admire somebody for doing that. And mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, I can understand to a point, like I would, you know, not want to say the same thing everyone else is saying. Like I'd want to pick something a little bit, a little bit different. But again, I, I don't think there's much you can do that with, with the Beatles. There's just <laughs> yeah. no, there's nothing there that's like, you could go with some of the songs that aren't on an album, like it's like Hey Bulldog or something, but it's still mm -hmm. like, still a freaking Beatles song. Well, if you if you said like here, there and everywhere, I'd be like, really, Nate, that's kind of a surprise. I, I wouldn't have thought you would have picked that. You know, I'm not going to pick I Want to Hold Your Hand because I already said earlier in the show, that's not my favorite song. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it, it is. Um, it, it would be a challenge. You couldn't find a deep cut because, as you said, there really aren't any Beatles deep cuts. Um, it, I heard also, and I'm not sure if this is true because I really don't know their timeline very well. Was Paperback Writer part of the Revolver Sessions? 
Um, I don't think so. I think it was um, I think it was before this. Oh, okay. Um, because I think it was. I want to say sixty five is sticking out to me. Um, but I'm not sure because that one. Yeah, that wasn't on an album either, right? I don't think so. No, I think that was just a single. Yeah, so maybe it was like before Rubber Soul or during or or mm. it was so weird because they have some some of their songs like big songs like that one and Hey Jude and stuff that just aren't attached to an album, right? Even though like Hey Jude might be one of their biggest songs ever. So yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure on where um Paperback Writer fits into that, but I want to say it's like. Uh, some point between like uh yeah some point before or like between help and um or maybe it's even before help i don't know i don't know yeah. i guess that my answer is i don't know oh and that's perfectly fine <laughs> i figured you'd probably know better than i do because you're you're more versed in knowledge and i just listen to music in this uh, case i don't know better than you do and yeah. that's that's bound to happen <laughs> once in a while uh you know the the big controversy of course i think there's a, a a huge miscommunication, and, and I don't want to blame Paul McCartney for this, but I kind of do. Um, it, this new Beatles song that's about to come out, their final oh, new yep. Beatles song, uh, the confusion over AI's involvement in the song. Uh, the mm -hmm. first quote that I read from Paul McCartney was that they used it to recreate John's voice and, and basically alluding to to fill in the parts that they can't, that, that they don't have audio for him they used AI to sample his voice and recreate what they would want him to sing or whatever. Um, and then he came back and said, no, we only used AI to clean up the audio. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do you need AI to do that? Don't we have an amazing array of tools to clean? I mean, we can, we can extract vocals from anything now. We can, you know, uh, do just about anything we want. Um, I'm not really sure how AI played a role in that. What's, what's your understanding of what they did? Yeah, I mean, I think when people hear AI, they think uh, <clears throat> I think it it goes down back to the um, the Get Back documentary. Um, I know that Peter Jackson, in coordination with the Beatles or whoever, developed some sort of very amazing AI to be able to isolate um, tracks. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that they're they're using that technology or. I'm sure it's something proprietary and that maybe they'll eventually uh, license or sell or whatever. So, so maybe they just used it to, I know there's a lot of stuff you can do. Like if you have enough recordings of somebody's voice, you can duplicate it. Like recently in the news, um, there was that woman who got a call. Her daughter was somebody who was like a speaker and there was like a lot of recordings of her giving speeches. Mm -hmm. So somebody took her voice and took all that audio and was able to recreate her voice and had it call her mom and say she'd been kidnapped and she needed all this money. And her mom, it was daughter's voice. So, wow. you know, she, 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 she was believing it. So it could be something like that. There's no shortage of John Lennon talking and singing that you could just feed into an AI and it, it could just enhance that. Whereas like, Oh, well we, before you, you know, you'd cut, you could cut specific words he's saying, but it would sound all disjointed. Mm -hmm. Whereas now you could have him actually, you know, it would sound like him actually singing and it could fill in the gaps that they don't have in an old track or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so that's, it's, it's that's hard what to... I thought they did. That was the impression I got from his first statement. But then his second statement came back and said, no, we just use it to clean up. Uh, which which led to what you said at first, which was that, you know, the, the proprietary track separation and all that that, that they created. Um, I think the bigger controversy might be the fact that originally when they wanted to work on this song, apparently George Harrison did not like the song and did not want it released. Mm -hmm. And now that he's gone and has no say so, 
yeah. they have the ability to release it without his consent. So I, I guess that would be another, you know, that that becomes a, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we not doing the right thing? Yeah, I mean, who knows? It's it, You know, even when the Beatles anthology came out and they did those two new tracks where they took demos of John singing and did all, you know, and, and made new songs out of them. You know, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it was cool that, it, you know, it was kind of weird in the 90s to hear a new Beatles song. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't think they'll ever start tinkering with stuff like that or trying to reimagine it. Is it right or wrong? Who knows? It's it's hard to say. But I guess if the if the living Beatles uh, and I guess, you know, Yoko and Olivia uh consent to it then what's what's the worst that could could happen they've released so much behind the scenes stuff and all that i mean most of most of me says just let it go (laughs) let it go it's well over just let it let it be as it were there you Um, go but i i don't i I don't know it's it's i feel like it's one of those things that could just be debated into the ground and at the end of the day it's what they want to do well, and I think this was a song that, that when they did those two songs, this is one of the ones that they had looked at releasing. And that was when George put the kibosh on it and said, no, I don't want to do mm-hmm. it. And they said, OK. And that was the end of it. Um, speaking of AI and what you can do with it, uh, I think I sent this to to you and, and John and Rich in our group uh, text. The uh, the uh, thriller video where they replaced Michael Jackson with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's it, just amazing because it's it just looks just like him. It's and they, frightening. It, it's really scary, and, and it's it's you know we used to have that uncanny valley sort of situation, but this isn't even it. It's just like oh, that's just Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's his face. Like you, you even staring at it, knowing what it is, it you, it's it's seamless. Like it looks, mm-hmm. it blends in perfectly with the background. It's just, um, yeah, it's scary, and they can do that with audio just as easily i somebody recently did this with a fairly unsophisticated ai they did paul mccartney singing bohemian rhapsody oh wow and it sounded pretty good like it sounded pretty much i think when it got to the um you know scaramouche scaramouche part it was pretty much like no this is just the queen like the ai was like i don't know what the hell to do with this part or who (laughs) freddie mercury is but like the whole thing with him playing the piano and getting some of those nuances of paul's voice i mean it was it wasn't perfect but you know if you told me you know years ago before i would have known what ai was oh here's paul mccartney messing around at home doing bohemian rhapsody like wow that's kind of cool like it's it's good enough to 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 fool a lot of people and it's it's getting better at a at a scary rate, you know, yeah. even a year ago, we weren't even really talking about AI. And now it's like every single day, there's some new AI thing that's scaring people. I think I would have been more interested in hearing what Paul McCartney would have done for a baseline on Bohemian Rhapsody than hearing him sing it. That could have been. Yeah, cool. that would be the most interesting, just hearing him bebop around on his Hofner or whatever. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was just the vo- And, it, you know, the piano was pretty much exactly the same piano. So sure. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't perfect. But, you know, this was something that wasn't done by a um you know, the, the, the thing that Peter Jackson is using to right. get back, this was just some schmuck using AI and, you know, probably $50 worth of AI software and, and, and created this. So that's, what's scary. This is, this is not even professionally done. If they really wanted to go for it, they could probably fool people. Well, sure. And and you have to figure that, that much like, you know, there were copyright violations before copyright law existed now that this is a thing, there's going to have to be new laws implemented about rights to people's likeness and usage. The danger gets into more, I guess, the political side of things where you could have uh, political candidates on video saying things they didn't say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's I, I think the, the bigger scary thing. 
that could uh, potentially trigger some dangerous situations. But I, I mean, I wouldn't want people. I mean, no one's going to do it with me, but it, except for maybe you. But you know, no one's going to take my voice and and have me doing anything that I didn't do in reality because I'm just not that. I don't have a, that big <laughs> yeah. following, you know. You're not that important. Uh, but but well, people is, could do it. But, but think like, about people could do it. Like you know, like people could make a a, a phone call or a voicemail message in your name and get yeah. you fired or mm-hmm. something because they oh look what he called up and he said this offensive thing to me. Right. So it's you know in the if it advances at that level to where the common person has it, I mean you're going to start to run into some really tricky situations where even some. Poor schmucks like us could get in trouble with it if somebody really wanted, if somebody just had a axe to grind with us, who knows? Right. And well, think about your kids, too. I mean, you know, kids at school that are bullies that want to mm-hmm. uh, even, you know, think about Cobra Kai and those scenes where those girls made the videos of like Samantha and, and the other girl that that's not on the show anymore. Think about what they could do with that technology in their hand. And I'm sure that within a year or two, that will be readily available on your phone. Yeah, I ugh, I don't even want to think yeah. about it, especially with kids going into middle school and everything. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy. Well, in breaking news, I just got a notification from Patreon that the newest episode of the Deep Purple podcast is available. Oh, wait, uh, we got to stop. I want to go listen to that. <laughs> right? Yeah, because you weren't there when it was actually I was there when this one was recorded because it was the second uh, live oh, at Olympia. Right. Yeah. Uh, what's happening in the world of Deep Purple right now? Oh boy. And in the show or the band? Yes. <laughs> the the band's just touring around uh mostly Europe, it seems. Um oh well in like South America too, right? Yeah. Else. But as we talked about briefly before the show, they they're not really doing anything in the US. So hopefully there's some big sort of big plan and they'll hit hit us in the fall or who knows. Um but uh yeah, we just uh we just covered these um uh uh live at the Olympia uh episodes we just did our second one uh that came out this morning um which is a you know their first uh which was a a, a prominent live album release between perpendicular and abandon mm-hmm. and then i think by the time this episode comes out it's safe to say uh, our first part of our abandon or maybe both parts of our abandon review will be on their 1998 album mm-hmm. um so uh yeah so that's kind of where we are in the their 16th album and we're um you know, we're, we're creeping through their catalog and then jumping around and checking out of all the offshoots and doing some random weird episodes and trying to cover a good live performance from each tour and all that sort of stuff. So that's what I love about your show is you you never know what you're going to get from week to week, but it's always fun. I mean, if you're if you're covering an album, it's fun. If you're doing one of your random weird episodes or cover, uh, Coverdale tweets or whatever it is, you know, it's it's always I, there's never been a single episode I didn't enjoy the closest I came, and I can't remember which band it was, but it was the one with the female singer that was really obnoxious. Oh, yeah. that was oh the, Zephyr. Zephyr, yeah, that was the yeah, one yeah. that that I came the closest to saying, "Okay, I can't listen anymore." <laughs> <laughs> but then you have to listen for John's reactions. Well, that's what made it worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but are they? Uh, is there talk about them? Uh, doing some writing sessions or or uh, working on a new album yeah when we um uh when we met up with them in february they were talking about doing some writing and they they were working on some material with simon their new guitar player so um yeah so there's going to be there it looks like there's going to be another album which is amazing and hopefully they'll they'll be capturing a, a couple of concerts with simon for a release too because this is you know much like 
any change in the band. This is a historic event, especially a guitar player for a rock and roll band. Um, yeah. What I've heard, I've really liked, but it's really going to come down for me to the writing. Like, do I like his style of writing, the way he meshes with the band in the studio? A lot of people can jump in and do the live stuff. The yeah. studio is where it's really going to come down to um, what is the new Deep Purple going to sound like? I love his solo stuff and his his most recent solo release. I really, really love that album. So, um, but then again, it's going to be completely different with Deep Purple. Like, you know, try to look at Steve Moore solo or mm-hmm. or Dixie Dregs. And when you hear him with Deep Purple, it's not you're not hearing like, oh, this sounds like a Dixie Dregs song. I mean, right. Yeah, it's completely different. So. I think he's real somebody like Steve who's really good at saying, okay, I'm doing this for Deep Purple. I'm not doing, you know, I'm not going to put too much of my own uh, style on it, but he's a great songwriter, a great singer, a great, fantastic guitar player. So I'll be really interested to see what they come up with together, um, you know, regardless of, you know, when that is. And, and it's, I'm also, you know, not to be grim, but, you know, it could end at any moment for them. So, yeah. um, I'm I'm hoping they get that that you know I, we keep saying oh that one last album that one last album for the last four albums <laughs> right, right, <laughs> at least yeah. um, you're probably probably you know saying that uh, in in 1975 too but um, uh, yeah I'll be really uh, I'm excited I'm excited to see what it is and what no matter what comes out of it it'll be really interesting and um, I love to have, I can't believe we're having one more era of the band at least. Yeah. Well, I remember a John Lord interview after he had left the band and uh, somebody asked him if they thought that if he thought that Purple would survive another lineup change. And he goes, well, why would they, you know, if they're not happy with what they have now? But this wasn't a set of, a circumstance of somebody chose to leave or, you know, they kicked somebody out of the band. It was he had to, you know, Steve had to take right, uh, right. his leave from the band. And, and I, I greatly respect that had to be a hard it had to be an easy decision, but a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I think also, I'm sure he just part of him, too, is just like, OK, like I had a lot of fun. I love the, it. seems like he left on really good terms. Yeah. Everyone's, you know, nobody speaks a bad word about him. So, you know, he yeah. might have just also felt like, OK, as well as this, I feel like maybe this has run its course. Obviously, I don't want to be touring all around South America and Europe. You know, you see him yeah. doing shows like in Florida and Georgia and stuff. He's close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, it might just wear on you. I, not many people are like you know, Glover and Pace and Airy and Gillen and can just say, yeah, I'm going to be just basically on the road 100% of the time. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and you know, I kind of thought, too, with some bands with with COVID when they couldn't tour and they learned what it was like to not be on the road, how many of them weren't going to want to return to the road, you know? Right. I, I, I mean, mean, that's how I would be, but I'm, yeah. I'm wired different, you know, like I'd be like, oh, this is great. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I get to stay home with my family and relax. And I think they most of them thought it was great for, you know, not the circumstances, but right. I think a lot of them felt like, oh, this is a nice little break for mm-hmm. a while. And then, you know, you get a year into it and you're like, OK, <laughs> we need to do something else. Exactly. Uh, tired of doing my own laundry. Um, except for Gillen, actually, that's a therapeutic thing. I, I remember an interview with Ian Gillen where he was talking about how he loves to iron. It's very hmm. therapeutic for him because he doesn't get to do it. He'd be the perfect roommate for me because I hate to iron. There you go. Yeah. So if you go on um, tour with them, uh, do your podcast on the road, then you guys, yeah, are, you guys me are and Gillen roomies. <laughs> I'd be like, I'll do all the dishes. I'll do all the cooking. Just don't make me iron. Just bring a lot of button down shirts. 
<laughs> of course, I don't have my war. If you looked at my wardrobe, none of it needs to be ironed. So, right. yeah, I <laughs> I've, think I've, my, I've compensated that way. My music banners need to be ironed. My shirts do not. <laughs> uh, so before we get into this wonderful album of Revolver, uh, we have one bit of news that I saw last night that uh, for for just a moment, and it's because it's a slightly deceptive headline, made my heart sink. I got really excited, Uh then my heart sank, then I was like, okay. So go into this with the premise that it's going to be okay. The the headline of the article is, Tony Iommi urges Black Sabbath fans to be patient for Born Again Remix. Oh, I see where you're you're going. Okay. Yeah. So How how does it end? I saw Born Again Remix and got excited. Then I saw Be Patient and my heart sank. The gist of the article is actually very exciting. They have the master tapes. They have the actual original reels. They found all of them. The be patient part is the fact that it's it's down the line because they're going in order. Yeah. Of of all the albums and they're not quite close. You know, they had a few years under their belt before Ian did his one album with them. And so uh, they're still working on the Ronnie, early Ronnie era stuff. So it's going to be a little while. But the good news is they have the tapes. They're in the process of being transferred to a digital medium so that they can be reviewed. He is very well aware of what went wrong on the actual release. Although I love it because I'm used to it. And that's the album I know. But I would yeah. also love to have a version where I can hear what's going on. And, and uh, I, I I would love to have both available. So I'm really excited, hoping for maybe a bonus track or two. Uh, he's, he seems like he's doing a pretty big uh, job with all of these remasters he's doing. Yeah, it's going to be great because, I mean, part of it will be weird because you'll be like, this isn't the Born Again that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when they release these remasters, you're like, oh, it's a little louder and a little whatever. and you, But there's not like a, anything that shocks you. I think people will be kind of shocked by this one because if they're able to isolate everything with today's technology mm-hmm. and all the AI we talked about and not that they would even really need AI, just doing some basic EQing and level changes and all that. I mean, you could make this sound like a, well, just like a, an album should have sounded in 1983. Right. And and it was we're not was, asking for much here. We just just want it to be not not sound terrible. Exactly. And and it was some accidental mistake that was made that caused the fine. But how I don't the part I don't understand is, OK, so they they sent the final master to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers was like, OK, we'll start cutting records. Did nobody stop and say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. I mean, that's, probably not. The they probably figured they're. They probably figured this is in the studio. People know what they're doing and, you know, what they, you know, but they, you know, t- supposedly there was some issue with the monitor speakers. Mm-hmm. I'm sure cocaine pay- played no small part in it. No. And, you know, the combination of all that just was was awful. And, you know. Yeah. So, but to yeah, me, I'm excited. I, I love the sound of the album as it is. And, and like I said, in part, it's probably because I'm used to it. Um, for me and not to pick on Metallica, but it wasn't like when Injustice for All came out and I said, this sounds awful. You know, I I love the writing. I love the performance. But this album sounds horrible. I never felt that way with Born Again. I I just kind of accepted it like I did the cover art, (laughs) you know? Yeah. yeah. Just like this is what they did, you know? Um, Yeah, exactly. But but there is that part of me that that audio engineering side of me and the musician side of me that that really wonders what it'll bring out in the music that I haven't heard. Like, what don't I know about this? Because I just can't hear it. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. So when they when uh, Rock FM asked Ian Gillen 
uh, said, is it true that you that he broke the Born Again album when he first got his copy of it? Ian responded, I didn't break it. I threw it out the window of my car. Yes. <laughs> Much like uh, Def Leppard did when they when he gave him a copy of the House of Blue Light. Uh, they just they listened to, I guess, like 10 seconds of it and threw it out of the window. <laughs> Def Leppard did? Def Leppard did. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so boy. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, so and, uh, and Richie Blackmore threw out Stormbringer out the window. Yes, and uh, a lot of that going on, and 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 as we suspect, the uh, the concerto score. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> he he still hasn't fessed up, but I'm wondering. No, no. Yeah, so I I'm excited uh, for for it to come out. I think uh, Mob Rules will come out before Born Again, and that's the other Sabbath album that I really love. So I'm I'm excited about both of those. Uh, yeah, I but it's not it's not too far off if it, if they're keeping on that timeline. Yeah, exactly, and they're really really comprehensive. I mean, they're really nice packages. He's he's really going all out for these. So, um, yeah, I, I'm excited. And I'm sure he'll, there's one bonus track. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head that I've heard. Uh, it was pretty good. Um, so I'm sure that'll be on there. And uh, and God knows what else they wrote and just didn't release. Yeah. And from a business standpoint, I think they just got to get the Ozzy and Dio stuff out first. Oh, it's going to make more sense anyway. From yeah, a business standpoint. And then we'll put this out. It's a niche crowd that lo- that loves this album. And it's it, it. what will be really interesting is all the people who've endlessly complained for 40 years about how awful the production are, is on this mm-hmm. to watch how they're going to complain about the the remaster. Be like, oh, it doesn't they took away the life of Born Again. It's like, wait, you guys have been complaining about this album since the day it was released. Right. Now you're complaining because it doesn't sound like Born Again. Like you're gonna have to people are gonna have to listen to it with that in mind. Like it's gonna sound probably radically different. Mm-hmm. Um and you're gonna have to take it for what it is and being a almost a new product, not a cleaned up product, but a fixed product. Right. It's gonna be very different. Like if they did actually release a version of Justice for All where you could hear the bass and where it was actually produced well, it would be very different. It is, yeah. And, you know, I think it would be interesting to hear, but I might, I can see myself listening to it and being like, it sounds better, but I want to listen to the original one, even though it sounds like <laughs> crap, because that's what I've listened to for over 40 years. Well, I actually just watched a video of an engineer that had done that. He he has, I don't know how he got a hold of the master tapes, but he's got all the individual tracks. Maybe he used a separator, but uh, he actually did um, remix it, and it sounds fantastic. Yeah, I've heard there's Injustice for Jason, I think yeah. it's called. And I, <laughs> I think that's the thing that that bothered me about Metallica not um, remixing it when they did all their remastered albums, because I felt like they really owed it to yeah. Jason to to give them, you know, his due on that album. But it does it does sound fantastic. Absolutely. And, and there's other, it's not just the bass. I mean, there's other issues. It sounds dry as hell. It sounds like it was yeah. recorded in a padded room. Uh, the snare is really papery. The kick is dead. I mean, there's so much more yep. than just the bass. But even just bringing out the bass made a huge difference in the, in the sound of that album. But uh, yeah, I, time will tell. Um, I, I'm really excited. But you're right. I think people just want to complain. I think that's that's where we're oh, at absolutely. in the world now. You know, <laughs> but one people thing, love it. <laughs> one thing you cannot complain about is the Beatles and Revolver. Uh, such a fantastic album. I've been so excited to to talk to you about this album since we uh, first talked about Abbey Road. Uh, what's your history with this one? Well, my dad had a lot of um, the Beatles albums, most of them. It's funny. I think he had everything except the White Album. No idea why he didn't have that one. Knowing my dad, he's probably oh, a double album. They're just trying to charge more money for it. So he just didn't buy it. <laughs> I think I think I have every other LP right over here from my dad's record collection. So nice. um, 
when I was five years old, I got a copy of the 20 greatest hits mm-hmm. and I, I listened to that and I loved it. And, um, uh, my dad had all the records. So then from that, from, from then I went on to listen to the records and uh, my dad, on my dad's uh, record player and our record player in the living room and started to really get into it. So, um, so yeah, this one was, uh, yeah, I, 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 I feel like I listened to all of them and this, this one, uh, always jumped out to me. And then when I was, you know, probably my early teens, I started, I think they were in the, maybe in the nineties, they were releasing or like the late eighties, early nineties, they started re-releasing them on CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started just picking them up one by one. It's like, as I had, whenever I had $13 or whatever, I go to the record store and I'd pick up the one. So like, I remember getting rubber soul and revolver pretty early on. And, uh, that's when I kind of, you know, it was a little easier to listen to on the CD. It sounded a lot better. And, um, that's when I started to really, uh, get into it. And those are the, like I said, I always gravitated towards everything from rubber soul on is what I usually gravitated to and, and put on constant replay. Right. I think for me, I don't remember specifically getting this album, but I do remember just one summer really getting into the Beatles and it was magical mystery tour the White Album, Revolver, Let It Be, and Sgt. Pepper. And my summer was just jam-packed with those two albums. I used to go on these long bike rides all over the neighborhood, and I would either bring uh, Let It Be or um, or Revolver on cassette on my little Sony Walkman and just, you know, cruise around the neighborhood and uh, through dangerous areas of, of our, our, uh, our little uh, spot in Michigan. Um, really, really great music. I mean, it's it's just the the depth of it, the harmonies, the artistry, the I mean, there's so much that they put into these songs that was just done in a style that while you have bands that are technical, you have bands that are progressive, you have all kinds of different music, there's nothing like what the Beatles did, especially in those later years. Yeah, I, I, I think of I, I, I just always think of them always trying to one up what they did before. Um, not always, but but this to me was like a perfect sequel to Rubber Soul, where they had test, tried some stuff out on Rubber Soul and they said, let's take it to the next level with this one. And I think it really works. Well, and I think having the luxury of not. Well, I, I should say in, in one way, it might be a luxury in another way. It might not be. Uh, is the the fact that they didn't have to be away. They could just go into the studio day after day and work on music or choose not to work on music and didn't have to be, you know, well, we, we have to get back in the studio to do another writing session because that's where they were. They weren't on the road. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of that, a lot of albums are the way they are because of what a band learns on their tour and, you know, working yeah. with each other and their experiences and that. So it, it it could go either way. Part of me wonders what they would have done if they had been on like a regular tour cycle. Uh, but in the end, I don't care because what they gave us was just phenomenal. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, they had the luxury that so many bands did not have of being so fabulously famous and wealthy that they didn't have to worry about your studio time and tape was all very expensive, but they had almost essentially unlimited time and resources to do whatever they wanted to do, which I mean, anyone would be happy for, you know, the first album was typical of a band, you know, we got 12 hours, we're going to record 12 songs or whatever it was Mm -hmm. and just bang it all out until John Lennon can't even sing anymore and just release it as an album. You know, most, most bands, Black Sabbath, uh, Deep Purple, all that, they all have similar stories of their first album um but yeah now we're at a point where they can take it you know they can do 
they were famous for doing 35, 40, 50 takes of one song. Yeah. And then, you know, like this one is take 41 is the one that we really like the best. And, you know, we did this one in six, eight and we did the other one in four, four. And we did you know, this one with this part and these instruments and they could just pick and choose what was the best one to do. And I think you get a good sense of that and get back as to how many different they would play songs into the ground. Even on Get Back, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're playing two of us again. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> and they, they, like in this one, we're going to in this one, we're going to play it without uh, opening our mouths or without, you know, with they, their teeth clenched. They're like, two of us running over. Oh and, and they did the whole song like that. And, it, you know, but that's what they would do. They would do silly stuff that had almost no possibility of being a a, a a final release but in each time of doing that they become so fluent with the songs and they might pick up one little thing that they want to add in that uh that's i think what gives their song their song so much character and makes them so interesting yeah and, and it's such a contrast to the way a band like purple records nowadays where you know ian pace i've heard him say many times if you don't get it in two or three takes put it away and do it another day because you're going to start yeah. Uh, thinking about it too much, you're going to be like, well, what was that one thing I did in one of the takes that I really liked? And then you're, you know, you're not going to be paying attention to the song. And, and, but I remember, uh, I think it was when you did the 25th anniversary in rock episode uh, where they, where you had said they recorded cry free, I think like 38 takes or whatever it was. And, <laughs> uh, and it never even made the album you know, after all yeah. of that. Uh, but, but, uh, obviously they do things a lot differently now, but it just seems like after a while, it, it's kind of like proofreading your own paper. How, how attached to the song, how focused are you on that performance after you've done it that many times? Or are we talking really a course of, okay, over three weeks, we recorded it 25 times. And yeah, I think with them, I think for the most part, that's probably true. And you start to get diminishing returns. But I think for the Beatles, that was just the way that they worked. And I, that's, to me, the most interesting part of Get Back is you really get a sense of their process that you don't get from the Let It Be movie or from really anything else. It's like, this is just what they did. And I don't I don't think it would work for most bands. Mm-hmm. But for them, it, you know, we're, let's try it a double time. Let's try it half time. Let's try it at this tempo. Let's try it in this time signature. Let's try it with this part. And they were just throwing so many things out there to see uh, what they were going to want from it. Cause when you listen to these, um, you know, when the Beatles anthology tapes came out or when the, these, these, what do they call them? Super deluxe versions of the albums that like revolver that came out mm-hmm. um, last year, you hear that like the previous takes don't sound like, Oh, it sounds almost exactly like it. No, it's like, this is something totally different right. that they were trying. It's something that sounds different. Let's try it with you singing. Let's try it with you singing, uh, you know, standing on your head. Let's try it with, with, you know, you, you play bass this time and I'll play guitar. Now let's switch and put b- 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 ball on drums for this one. You know, it's There's so many different ways that they tried things. And I think that's where the, the genius comes through. Yeah. And of course, now, if, if you were to record that way now and you do that in Pro Tools with your unlimited takes and then you could blend together, you know, different snippets from 38 uh, recordings of the song and make one final track that has a little bit of everything in it. Yeah. Uh, it, it wouldn't work. <laughs> I don't think because it, you know, it's, it's, it's like you can't do one verse with clenched teeth and then one verse with, with you just humming and then one verse with you standing slightly askew of the mic, uh, you know, there would just be no continuity. Uh, I think people could get a little a little too crazy with that. It's almost like it's a good thing that they were limited to to eight tracks or four tracks in in a lot of cases back then, 
um, because I think the tendency would have been to just do really crazy things and maybe even ruin the songs at points. Yeah, all this technology does come with a downside, which is, yeah, you can tinker with something forever. And here you really had to decide and commit and move on. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that anymore. You can you can have essentially unlimited tracks and and never have to make a decision about where you're putting them or how you're arranging them. And and perfect it to death. I mean, mm -hmm. even if you were listen to listen to the very beginning of Space Trucking, you know, those hits, they're not all on together for every hit. It's not a perfect yep. song. Yep. But they would never allow that to go out like that today. Somebody would clean that up oh, no. yep. and make it perfect. Yep. They'd and, yeah, they'd scoot the bass down a couple milliseconds, the mm -hmm. guitar up a couple milliseconds and have it all lined up perfectly on the grid. It's very dehumanized now. Yeah. And, well, uh, now you get the point where you, you're taking something that's sequenced and you're you're intentionally moving it off. And I know the late yeah. the latest uh, version of Ableton has I forgot what they're calling it, but they're calling it like drift. Mm. I think is what it's called, where you can apply a specific drift algorithm to something to make it sound more natural and to say, you know, this is going to vary. I don't I don't know what the, what the I, I don't have that latest version, unfortunately, because I'd love to tr try around with it. But say I'm going to take this drum track and the snare is always exactly on the two or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, you know, allow for a 10 millisecond drift in either direction on every hit. Right. So at this one is coming in eight milliseconds early and this one is coming one millisecond late. And so it has that more natural sound, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Um because I think people realized over time that that exact, you know, for for certain music, that exact on the money thing is perfect. Right. But for rock music, you do want it a little, a little more natural sometimes. Yeah, I have in, in MIDI, I have the ability to put in what percentage of human I want it to be when I quantize it. So oh, if I quantize, let's say my snare track and I could say will be 10 percent human, then I'll get <laughs> like a just like 10 percent of the track will be slightly off of that click. Mm hmm. You know, or I could just play it, which yeah. is what I actually do. You know? Yeah, I've got this drum set on my on my left here, this electronic drum set, which is just like a, it's got it's holding a you know it, it's 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 a shelf right. set of yeah. shelves now because I can do so much without it. Yeah. Well, before we get into the tracks, one last thing. Uh, I, I know this is completely off season, but since I've I've had Christmas on my mind as of late. Uh, you uh, put out a wonderful Christmas album last year, an 8-bit Christmas album, uh, oh, very yes. similar to my Sounds of the Circuit Board, only you were doing classic Christmas songs as if they were done through a computer. Uh, absolutely love that. I just found an Aerosmith album that was done in 8-bit. Um, oh, it's nice. like 40 tracks, though. It's it's like, I don't know how much of that you'd want to hear of, of <laughs> that, but... I uh, really enjoyed your album. Uh, it's it's going to be in my Christmas rotation every year. So uh, thanks for doing that. Do you? I know you have more songs. Do you have a plan to release another one? Yeah, I was actually thinking of doing it later this summer because I got it up super late last year, like too late for yeah. it was like halfway through December. Well, I was I was trying to figure out too how to get it up there with songs that were still in copyright and how to get the rights for them. So it was like a, kind of a learning experience. Uh, so I did like half songs that were in public domain and half songs that people know. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking of putting out a part two because I've already got the songs. They're all up on YouTube and it's a very, very popular YouTube video. One of my, the, probably the biggest ones that I've ever put up. So I figured maybe it'd be good to get it out there for people on Spotify and on yeah. all those other services in case people wanted to listen to it on the go and didn't have YouTube music. So um, yeah, I might, um, 
uh, might put up a part two. And actually, I was talking with some of my old bandmates from a band I was in 20 years ago, uh, more than 20 years ago now. Um, and we were, we were listening to some of our old stuff. And I was like, damn, those are pretty good. So I might throw that stuff up on uh, Spotify and stuff pretty soon, too. Nice. Yeah, I, I would love to hear that. And as we've talked about many times over the last couple of years, um, still waiting to hear some stuff that you and John Matola did together. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, you, you keep saying you're going to put it in one of your episodes. I'm I'm waiting. <laughs> I did in one of them. Uh, yeah, I think there was one, one of our. Did, yeah, there was one song I put in there. Um, yeah. We should, uh, yeah. That's been a, pro- a pet project is remastering that whole album we did. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just a bigger project than than I have the skill or time for. So I was I've been talking to my old my old studio partner and he helped me do one of the songs. I've, yeah, I've got I've got to get it out there one of these days. Yeah, that's that's what I'm in the process of doing is going and releasing like some of the film scores and stuff that I did for, you know, like 48 hour film challenges or short films. And um, I don't have the audio of those. I have the uh, MIDI tracks and anything mm. I recorded live, but I have to rebounce it. The problem is that I've upgraded from the old compact versions of some of those software to the new like East-West versions. So I don't have all the specific programming changes that I made. Mm -hmm. So I'm having to go in and recreate all those things to be able to recreate the soundtrack. And that's what's uh, holding me up a little bit. Um, But yeah, it's it's fun to go back and revisit that old stuff that, that you worked on and you know, it was something you were passionate about at the time. And uh, there's the nostalgia factor, which is always nice. But there's also just that you you get back into why you liked it in the first place, why you enjoyed writing it and working on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of old things we can enjoy, let's get into our album. This first song is called Taxman. And okay, so the Beatles were, they set another kind of precedence that they were being reta- they were being taxed some 90% on their yeah. income because no one had ever made the kind of money that they were making. <laughs> and tax laws actually had to be uh, rewritten to accommodate the ridiculousness of their income. Yeah, they 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 hadn't there was no precedent for how much money they were making. So <laughs> unless you were like a royal or something, but that in that case you probably weren't being taxed at all. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that was specifically the inspiration for this song, but uh I wouldn't be surprised. It it was for sure. Oh, there yeah. you go. Here is Taxman. <laughs> One, two, three, four. One, two. Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, that's t- typical. Um, it's so weird. Uh, I, I forget sometimes when I get away from listening to the Beatles how mono these albums are. You know, to hear yeah. all the drums in my left ear except for the tambourine in my right, uh, <sighs> it just it just feels so displaced. And I I kind of feel like uh, what what is it when uh, like my equilibrium is off a, a little bit? Yeah, yeah, and I I I never really picked up on it until i was listening to it 
either in a car or in a system where like one of the one of the speakers wasn't connected properly and i'm like what the hell is going on (laughs) i just hear the drums and the vocals or whatever it was and that's when i kind of learned about how harsh the stereo versions were and um you know a lot of people do prefer the mono versions for that reason but i think it's really cool and i think it also inspired even though they were doing it mostly because they had to bounce tracks and that was the way that they did it Mm -hmm. um it inspired a lot of people to do this really extreme panning stuff later on in the in the early 70s to kind of emulate that sound even though it was kind of a sound done by necessity but from them yeah and uh I, I remember when uh, I was working in an office and one of my one side of my earbuds went out. So I was listening to the Beatles at the time. I think I was listening to Magical Mystery Tour. And all of a sudden I'm like, OK, if I actually <laughs> just listen through one side, I can really learn what yeah. they're doing. And so that that became yep. a great tool for breaking down the music. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it always just throws me off for the, the first couple of songs until I get used to that separation again, but having all the drums, cause you would think that they would have at least done the drums in stereo, but when you only have four tracks and you've got to bounce, you can't bounce every single track that you do every time, then mm-hmm. everything ends up on one track and then you've got the drums on two tracks. So there's three out of the four. Uh, it's just a nightmare to mix with any quality at that point. And if you if you don't have it the balance just right every time you bounce, you've completely screwed the song. Yep. But I mean, that's um, part of the mastery of George Martin was how flawlessly he was able to do that. You never feel like anything is lost in the mix. Yeah. You know, we've talked about uh, in in the past about how when when rock bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple and Uriah Heep, uh, started recording heavier music, the the engineers didn't know what to do with it. It was a new thing for them. They were used to mixing, you know, uh, 60s music and orchestras and things like that. Uh, think about what George Martin had to deal with with the Beatles, all these sitars and all these things and all <laughs> these layers that they wanted to put in. Uh, I mean, he really is, I, I can't say the unsung hero of the Beatles because he's he's been very well credited, but man, he he had so much to do with their success just in the fact of getting it to sound good with everything they threw at him. And he was the, you know, he was the old man. He was in his 40s when they were in their 20s or whatever. And mm-hmm. he had had this rich experience of having produced, you know, classical music and spoken word stuff. And I think he did comedy album. So he had this wide, wide range of of things that he had done. He wasn't just a, a one trick pony. So I think that's the sort of stuff that really helped them if they wanted to bring in. Well, as we'll hear on the next track, if he, they wanted to bring in strings, uh, he, he wasn't just going to throw up some microphones and call it a day. He knew exactly how to record right. a string quartet or how to record horns or how to record a piano. It wasn't just uh, he wasn't he wasn't uh, just a rock guy. In fact, am I wrong in thinking that he's the reason that some of those songs had uh, string sections on them? Wasn't a lot of them were his idea? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think there's a I wouldn't be able to tell you every song, but I think there's a balance of Paul or John or whoever saying, hey, we want something different on this. What should we do? Or having a specific, oh, we want like I think the they gave him direction for, you know, say like a day in the life. Like we want this big, like boom, this big crescendo. And so George Martin wrote out the whole thing where, you know, every instrument goes from their lowest note to their highest note and give them the amount of the time frame to do it. And he came up with these creative things with classical musicians who would not necessarily have played that way. 
uh, but gave them a, you know, gave them the direction and was able to, I think he was able to translate a lot of what was in their minds, them not being the, the, the studied musicians that he was uh, and translate that into something that a, a horn section or a, a string quartet or, or a partial orchestra would understand. And that, mm-hmm. I think that's where the, the genius came in. And uh, an interesting Deep Purple connection to A Day in the Life, in fact, is that they they did somewhat of a replication of that on their first hard rock album, Deep Purple and Rock. If you listen to the end of Hard Love and Man, I believe it is, mm. uh, they, they did something a little bit similar, not quite the same or quite to the scale that the Beatles did, but it kind of felt like a little bit of a nod to, to A Day in the Life. And on In Rock, they recorded, uh, Bloodsucker was recorded at Abbey Road. Oh, oh that's right. Yeah. It's just strange to think, you know, uh, a f- you know, a few months after Abbey Road had been completed, they're in there doing Bloodsucker, which is such a <laughs> right, <laughs> a different different uh, song. Right, I think the, a lot of the that album was recorded at Delane Lay, wasn't it? Yeah, Delane Lay, uh, EMI Studios or something, and then I think the only one from that album at Abbey Road was Bloodsucker. I don't know why they were bouncing around so much, but and and what's weird to me is that when, when that happens, how consistent albums still sound, even though they're recorded yeah. on different consoles with. You know, we moved the equipment, the EQ's different, the volumes are different, but yet at the end, they sound like they were recorded in a day. Yep. Yeah, totally. I love that. Uh, interesting fact, too, about A Day in the Life, it took four people to make that piano chord. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, a, a, one of the most amazing and haunting moments in music history, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I don't know if I t- talked about this when we were, when we did our Abbey Road episode, but a friend of mine's uncle was able to get like a tour of abbey road mm-hmm. and um the piano that they used for that is still there and he, they let him play the chord oh. on the piano and it's like uh, even on a little crappy instagram video you can hear it and it's like wow that sounds like the album it's mm-hmm. it's crazy and he does it and then he kind of looks around and you can tell he's like got, getting chills you know just oh l- yeah being in that room looking around hearing it reverberate in that same exact room from the same exact piano it's like wow what a I don't know how they organize that, but I said, if they're ever going back, please let me know. I would be happy to be carry their bags or whatever. <laughs> I am not much one for travel, but I will say if I had a chance to go to Abbey Road Studios to be in the room where so much of our music history and not just because these albums were recorded there, but how many how much influence these albums have had on just music fans, on musicians, on the shape of music, on how music developed over the years. I mean, these are some of the most influential albums we will ever have in music. Yep. And to be in the room where those were not just recorded, but created, that would just be such a a, a mind fuck. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, I, I would really go in a heartbeat. I, I might have to renew my passport for that. <laughs> but Taxman is a good song. It's it's a fun song. It's a it's a good album kicker. You know, good good way to start it off on an energetic note. Um, not my favorite song, but uh, definitely one I enjoy. I love it. <clears throat> I love uh, you know Paul McCartney's bass line. Um, I love and Paul McCartney doing the guitar solo, which is interesting. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, uh, uh, I think it's. I think he's partially credited to. Uh, uh, I I think he, he I think in some cases Harrison's credited lead guitar, but I think it's pretty common knowledge that Paul McCartney did the guitar solo, which is interesting because it sounds to me like George Harrison. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a quote of George Harrison saying, you know, 
he did like this little Indian bit on it, which is why I always thought it was George Harrison because it sounded like George Harrison playing around with a sitar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that, you know, the lead guitar and that's the fluidity of the Beatles for um, the lead guitarist to write a song and have the bass player play the, the guitar solo on it. <laughs> you know, they're always, you know, and there's that famous part in Let It Be where he's talking to George Harris, Paul McCartney's talking to George Harris and he's like, I'll play the bass if you want me to, I'll play the guitar, I won't play if you want me to, whatever you want, you know, like they're just, they'll jump around and do whatever needs to be done. I don't think Lennon plays any, I think Lennon just does like the tambourine and the backing vocals. Um, And, you know, um, Harrison does the double track singing. Uh, I I just, uh, I think it's a great, I think it's one of Harrison's better songs Mm -hmm. um, in the, in the Beatles era. I think it's uh I think it's it's his only album opener. It's a, it's a great great track, rocking uh like I love that bass line. It's just it's almost like a precursor to come together bass line. Yeah. Um yeah. but yeah, I I I I love I think it's a a really good uh really great song. It just sets the tone for the album and then completely shifts the tone in the next song. It's kind of interesting though that if Harrison wrote it that he wouldn't have played the solo. Yeah, like I've seen him credited as playing the guitar solo, but I know that he's given interviews where he is talking about Paul playing the solo. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting. I wonder if it was this a time maybe where he was still felt like he should take a back seat. Oh, I mean, I think he was kind of coming into his own at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think he was probably feeling a little bit, like I said, he was still really, I mean, they were all really young, but he was the youngest by a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, probably, I think he was probably feeling pretty good that he got the album opener and got this yeah. song on the album. Um, and, you know, just, just hit about him being pissed at, uh, <laughs> pissed about the taxes and the <laughs> right. prime ministers who are imposing these taxes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it's a great song. I, it's such a grooving baseline. I mean, I, I, I love that Paul McCartney can go out and write these ridiculous bass lines and still be able to sing and play them at the same time because he's so technical. You know, mm-hmm. it's nobody writes stuff like he does. And to go out and perform it, I mean, now it's probably easy because he's done them so many times that it's not difficult to to do them. But when he first started out on his solo tours, I bet that took some work. Yeah, he gets, Paul McCartney gets nothing but, praise for his bass playing but it's still almost not enough he's just great great player great he's such a he's such a great melody writer Mm -hmm. both vocally and bass wise it just comes together great on this song yeah no pun intended uh our 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 next song is a very probably i would say one of their most well-known or or most famous songs it's called eleanor rigby I've heard the story behind the song, but I don't remember it. I think there was 
Eleanor Rigby's not a real person, but it was she was based on somebody, right? I don't know if it was based on anybody, but um, I think it, it, he had like a. I think he was singing like another name in place of it. Mm-hmm. I think he was singing Miss Daisy Hawkins, <laughs> and then he like changed it, which is like common for him to just you know scrambled eggs or whatever. You know, he he would use as a filler until he th- thought of something better. I don't think it's. I don't know. Maybe it is based on some some actual story, but I think it's just this. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing about. McCartney is he kind of like he's kind of like a fiction writer or a novelist mm-hmm. in a lot of his songs it's not you know like paperback writer we were talking about earlier he's just like I think the story behind that is like Ringo's reading a a, a book and he's like oh I should write a song about a paperback writer and then he just <laughs> you know like well I would, that would, wonder what it would be like to, to, to write a paperback and, and writes a song about it so it's not like really based in anything other than they saw a book and I think this is just this you know um he gets these like words or names that he changes slightly like Hey Jude from Hey Jules, you know, like mm-hmm. he, so he he kind of based them in some sort of reality, but kind of makes his own fiction around it, which is kind of how any fiction writer or most fiction writers would write books. It's some basis in their own personal experience, but not really a necessarily a, sto- a song or a story telling of, of an actual event. Right. I, I love the imagery, though. I I don't think I'd ever thought this before, but as I'm listening to the the vocals, I'm actually picturing like this old lady bending over and picking up grains of rice one at a time from <laughs> from a church floor because you know I my, hope she had a broom. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just give her a cup or something, you know. Uh, but I this is a song I've I've always loved. I will never get tired of this song. Uh, the cello has a lot to do with it, but the vocals mm. on top of the cello. They just blend the low end and that upper mid range so beautifully. Uh, then you've got the violin in there that just locks everything together. I mean, this this song to me is perfection. Yeah, I think it's one of the most beautifully written and recorded songs of all time. It just the and I the the way that this was with 1966, the way that those strings are recorded sound so crisp and upfront and just and 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 heavy in a way to it i mean i i was in a band with a, a buddy of mine and we did we were like a heavy metal band and we did a version of the song because it actually really lends itself is a dun 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 you know these like kind of descending little violin rides and the, the way they're attacking the strings i mean it's so it's four violins two violas and two cellos mm-hmm. um so it's a it's a octet uh and it just sounds so as delicate and gentle as the song is it sounds also it has this attack to it and it sounds almost aggressive from what the strings are doing they're not playing very softly they're really uh they're really letting those instruments have it yeah they're they're bowing pretty hard um and i i thought it was just to make it sound heavier but i think it works for the song too you know it just just the the way that the story goes in the song i think that more aggressive bowing just plays into the lyrics as well uh, but yeah, this is beautifully recorded. They really captured the low end of the cellos. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of recordings don't. They'll they'll capture the sound of the note, but not like I feel like they captured the full body of the cello as well. Yeah, yeah, it sounds. Yeah, I don't. I, I I would love to see. I wish there was a picture of what the mic setup was for this. Yeah, I would love to see what that room looked like. Uh, but you just. And of course, it's that great Abbey Road room. You just hear the the the, the great natural uh, reverb on everything. Um, you've got 
Paul McCartney double tracked. I don't know if I don't think he's double tracked the whole song, but he's double tracked. And then you've got Lennon and um, Harrison doing the harmony vocals. And it's just it, it, it's such a simple song. It's just mm-hmm. strings and vocals. But it's it, yeah, it's it's almost perfect. I've never seen any footage of this. I would imagine they didn't perform this live. No, no, I don't think they could. Yeah, they could have done some weird version of it. But but at but this point, they you know, they they played their last concert, I think, after this album was recorded, mm-hmm. but they didn't perform anything from this album at the concert. Yeah, so I don't exactly, think they ever yeah. performed anything. I mean, now I'm sure McCartney um, uh, does. But yeah, I mean, well, I'm sure he's done some orchestral shows over the years, I would I would imagine. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. I mean, it would seem like he would, but I'm I'm none that I'm aware of. But, hmm. you know, I think he has so much so many musicians with him on his shows now that he's able to recreate a lot of this. Yeah, that's true. He does have a pretty big band. Uh, yeah, definitely a, a classic. If you uh, you know, if you were to pick a top 10 songs for people to, to get into the Beatles who had never heard him, I would imagine this would have to be on your list. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Are you do you? And the, do you and, uh, Go ahead. Um, so when they released the Beatles anthology and they had just the instrumental version of this, I mean, it was just like my I had goosebumps the first time I listened to it. Yeah. That and the the version of because uh, with you know with just the vocals, mm-hmm. those two were just like absolutely haunting. Just listening to them in that room with the with that the, the sound is just it's and it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. I can't imagine if you recorded this today that it could that you could get it to sound any better than this. Well, yeah, and and I think a lot of that is because, you know, we depend so much on plugins and things to do that work for us as opposed to just knowing how to get a good sound, you know. Yeah, it was probably like this is it. It's a microphone going into a board. There's no I'm not adding reverb. Right. We don't need to because of this room and how do I capture it naturally from the room and yeah, yeah, very gentle compression or a limiter on there just to make sure the mic doesn't peak and you're good to go. Uh, yep. You mentioned because, and and I'll I'll say this every time I hear that song brought up. Uh, for anyone who is a fan of the Beatles, I suggest that you take some time to come to Las Vegas and go to the Mirage and go see the Beatles Love Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, I will promise you, and uh, our friend Rich can now attest to this because when he was here last year, he went and saw that show. Uh, hearing mm-hmm. because in that theater, that acapella version. Uh, is worth the price of the ticket alone. It is just unbelievable. And Sir George Martin came out and mixed that music specifically for that theater. So you've got your maximum sound um, and it's a round theater. So it's uh, it was a little challenging, but uh, man, if, if anybody is a fan and gets the chance, it, it's not like a hokey Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, it's, it's musically, just the audio alone is well worth hearing in the theater. One day, one day. And I have confirmed with uh, Mirage Security that now that they've been taken over by the Hard Rock, at least as of now, there's no intention of removing that show or doing anything else with that theater. Why oh, would I couldn't you imagine? I'm sure it's super popular. Well, they're re- they're destroying half the hotel and building a 60 story guitar. And, uh, you know, oh, it's, like it's the... going to have a light show like the one in Florida. You know, it's going to yeah, have its yeah. own light show and all that. So uh, that'll be interesting. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we don't have enough lights down there. Yeah, yeah. It's, you need some. You know what? Vegas could use some really big, gaudy buildings. 
Yeah. Well, you know what we what we just got, or, or I just saw it for the first time, and and I'm down there like once a week or so doing a walk. But uh, we got one of those 3D billboards where it looks like things are coming out of the like physically coming out of the billboard. Oh. I oh, do I've seen those like know. in Times Square. Like, yeah. yeah, like it looks like there's like a lizard craw- crawling on top of it and stuff. Yeah, I do not know how they work, but I can tell you, you know, seeing them on TV or like in a video on Instagram or whatever, they actually look like that. They are so realistic. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I had to just stop and watch it a couple of times, do its rotation. I'm like, this is this is really cool. Yeah, much better than when they did that uh, in Back to the Future when when they had that 3D Jaws come out of the... I don't know, the, that was pretty impressive too. <laughs> yeah, about as impressive as the rock in The Scorpion King. Uh, 